The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Talo for lover. I'm Madeline Chapman, editor at The Spin-Off. If you have the means, consider supporting our high-quality journalism by becoming a Spin-Off member. Sign up now at thespinoff.co.nz/donate. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi, looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. Tenakoto katoa. Hello. This week I want to talk about intergenerational wealth transfer. What that means in economic and political terms, but also what it means in personal terms. I think the best way to tell this story is through my own situation and my hopes for my daughters and my hopes to be a grandfather one day. I'm 54 now. I'm very lucky in that I was able to get into the housing market early enough to get all that unearned gain from falling interest rates, restrictions on house building and high net migration that powered through into my bottom line which now I'm thinking is fantastic, but what does it mean for my daughters? And it's forced me to think about how did we end up in this situation? What were the big political, demographic, institutional forces that created this situation? Well, it's worth going back in time a bit. Over the last 30 years, a generation of voters and politicians made a decision. They decided to stop investing in infrastructure and in the future and in things that future generations would use. The reason being, it's expensive. And if you do it, that means that you can't cut taxes or keep rates low. So a generation from the mid-80s and early 90s onwards essentially decided they weren't going to invest significant sums in building new dams or new motorways or new houses. And instead, rather than all of that cost being spread across the entire society in the form of taxes collected and taxes invested in infrastructure that everyone could use, instead that generation said, anyone who wants to build that infrastructure should pay for it themselves. It's not something that all of society should pay for. So we effectively stopped investing in public housing We stopped investing in a lot of public transport and also a lot of roads and hospitals and schools. An enormous amount of infrastructure wasn't built over the last 30 years, particularly at a time when we had very fast population growth from 2003 onwards and particularly in the second half of the uh, 2010s, we had extraordinary population growth, much faster than even that generation would have expected. And when you get that, you need to make sure you've built your infrastructure before people come, not after they come. And the reason why that generation decided to push the cost of future infrastructure out onto future generations is because it allowed them to cut taxes. So New Zealand used to have a relatively high tax government. Up until the mid-'80s, we had a tax system which meant those on high incomes paid very high income tax rates. In fact, we also had a land tax up until 1990 and it was quietly phased out. 
And there was a lot of government investment in infrastructure. Through the 40s, 50s and 60s, a generation of voters and governments saw themselves as not consuming now, making a choice to use their output to reinvest in the future. They saw themselves as a young, growing country and that their role was to make sure that there was plenty of infrastructure, good housing, good roads, good dams, so that people who were growing up in the 70s and 80s and 90s, the boomers, could have a good life. So they restrained their personal consumption. It wasn't a fun place, the 50s in New Zealand. There was high taxes. But they did invest a lot in infrastructure. In fact, some people think they invested too much. That's another story. But what it meant was there was this catastrophic shift in the late 80s and the early 90s where those people who had taken over government, who had benefited from this heavy infrastructure spending through the 50s and 60s, suddenly were in a position to say, you know what, we don't really need any more new infrastructure. And also, if you spend all this money on infrastructure, how on earth are you going to get tax cuts? How on earth are you going to get ahead if you don't get a tax cut? We had the passing of the Public Finance Act, which effectively forced the government to always reduce its debt. And that meant that it was very difficult for the central government to borrow money and invest it in infrastructure. And that's a very good way to do debt. Now, the reason I'm going on about this and the reason why I think it's interesting is that we are now seeing the collective catastrophe of 30 years of underinvestment in infrastructure landing on our heads at a time of crisis. We're coming out of COVID and now we have an enormous labour shortage problem. We also have an absolutely horrible problem with housing affordability. We are spending a million dollars a day putting people up in motels. But there are still people living in tents. We have the highest proportion of people in our country who are paying more than 40% of their after-tax pay in rent on private rentals. That is the highest level of rental poverty in the OECD. We now have the most expensive housing in the developed world when compared to incomes. Our houses and our rents have risen at faster more explosive rates than any other country in the world in the last 20 years. And it's a catastrophe for our society, for our economy, in all sorts of different ways. But it's the result of a generation of decision makers and voters deciding, accidentally on purpose, or sometimes on purpose, to consume now, to make themselves wealthy now, and not pay it forward. The end result, though, and this is where the personal story comes in, is that now that generation who are heading into being grandparents, so I put myself in that generation, I'm 54, I've got two daughters, one of whom is 19 and one of whom is 28. And I'm beginning to think, as you do when you're, when you're 54, I'd quite like to be a granddad. I could read all those books that I've stored away in the attic, the ones that I used to read to my kids. And now I've got time to do it. And I'm wealthy and, you know, I want to expend my wealth on my grandkids. But what happens if those grandkids aren't there? What happens if it's impossible for my daughters to grow up in New Zealand and have their own families in New Zealand and they have to move to Australia? That's what we've seen this week, actually, with news that the Wellington Hospital's radiology department, half of them, 
walked out in the last six weeks because they couldn't afford to live anymore in Wellington. They'd given up hope of owning their own home and the rents had just exploded. They've walked out and they've gone for pay increases in Australia of 30 to 40% and because they can get rents of $100 to $150 a week less in the CBDs of Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane than they can here in New Zealand. So... For us, the baby boomers and the boomer adjacents, that great dream we had, that hope of nursing our grandkids, ah, it's not there anymore. We're going to have to watch them grow up on Skype or not at all because that's often a choice people are making now, not to have children at all when they know that they don't have affordable, dry, warm housing to bring their own kids up in. That, for me is the point of leverage now, sadly, that that generation has, the only point of leverage, to say to that generation who selfishly took for granted the infrastructure investment and the low consumption and the high taxes of their parents in the 40s, 50s and 60s, took it and banked it, they're going to have to now, in their days of incredible wealth, remember, They're sitting on a housing market with 1.5 trillion. It's gone up over 300 billion in the last year. They can afford to give up a little bit of it, particularly if it means they might see their grandkids grow up. This week, we're going to talk to some property developers who also think we need to pay it forward a lot more, invest a lot more in infrastructure to reduce the cost of new housing, which effectively sets the costs for housing right across the board. They are saying we should look at For example, a land tax to invest in infrastructure, effectively shifting some of that wealth from that generation who didn't pay for the infrastructure, shifting it to that younger generation. So maybe I can convince my daughters to have their kids here. I'm Bernard Hickey. That's this week in When the Facts Change. We're looking at intergenerational wealth transfer, how a generation didn't invest in infrastructure and now... If they want to have futures as grandparents, we'll have to change their ways. Welcome to Mark Todd into the studio of the spin-off there on Morningside. Mark, welcome to When the Facts Change. Oh, thanks, Bernard. I really appreciate being here. So I wrote a column a couple of weeks ago and another one last week talking about the housing market, how I'd initially lost hope, but then deciding to put up, you know, a radical <laughs> a radical idea to um, see if we can try and solve this, um, shaking my head for a constructive solution. And you you reached back out and said, uh, that's an interesting idea. It could, it could work. So let's sort of drill down into that from someone who is really involved in the messy, interesting business of building the housing we need. Mark, just, just to start with, for those people who aren't familiar with uh, what you do in Auckland, um, tell us about Ockham and, and what you're building and why. Yeah, well, we're 12 years into our, our mission of building better quality apartments. We've built 750 units. We've got another 760 units to deliver over the next three and a half years, which is significant. That's over half a billion dollars worth of apartments. We're involved with the Kiwi Build program in partnership with Marutuahu. We do build to rents about 15% of those apartments, and we, the, the balance is just market to market from relatively affordable to highly unaffordable in certain parts of the city. And you know, even our Kiwi Build program, I don't think you could describe as affordable, but at least it's well below the median house price in Auckland, you know, by 30 or 40%, which anywhere you can build 
new housing that is lower than the average value in that area, you've, you've, you've lowered the house price of that suburb, and that's, that's why urban regeneration is something that I feel is important for the city as it grows and mature, but it's also important to sort of discourage socioeconomic stratification that the old planning rules um, encourage. So That's right. Your apartment buildings, as you say, have some very expensive uh, units, the flash ones, I suppose you say, the big ones. But then you've also got the, you know, uh, one-bedroom style uh, units, which are smaller, but, um, you know, if you're starting out, uh, that's, um, that's a pretty good place to be. Or maybe if you're an empty nester, you're on your own, or just a couple, you can jump into that. How do you manage to sort of do that mixed style of thing and how do you make it affordable? Because um, I remember hearing from lots of other people that the only way you could build apartments was to do lots of luxury apartments. Well, we completely disagree with that. And uh, say we're in real time now, we've got three projects and delivery hundreds of apartments. Um, the average price in, in those developments is around 700000 you know, there's a mix of one-bedroom units that are around 550, including a car park. Two bedrooms at 650 in the open market. Two bedrooms are generally between late sixes into late sevens. You know, suburbs like Avondale, Unihunga, Waterview. So these are high value in a well. They're really in the wider context. That's the core of Auckland, where people want to live, where the most amenity is, the least travelling time, a better lifestyle, better access to entertainment and jobs, and it's totally possible. I think the key difference from us is if you're an apartment developer, people don't believe this, but the average for our project budget, the land inputs about eight percent on average. Eight percent. That's all. And it is. to compare that with a with a house and land package where the section is five hundred, six hundred thousand, and then you've got another yeah. six hundred, eight hundred thousand for the house. That's amazing. Like one of our core values is to drive change and to lead and to broaden the solution space. The dirty secret of property development that the bigger players that have been around the longest pedal down in Wellington is that, you know, we need more land, supply and demand more land, the land's a lower cost, that'll drive the cost of housing down. The reality is that urban subdivision or, you know, city fringe subdivision or greenfield development is a, probably the, the term that most people understand. The real money is in creating the titles to the land. Building the house is an afterthought and the person that builds the house might make a third or a quarter of the person that provided the section on which to build that house. Whereas for us, building apartments, we make all our money by building the actual apartment building, creating that community. And so there's a different incentives. We actually build to build homes, whereas I got no sympathy if it takes 10 years to rezone a farm. We didn't ask for it in the Auckland plan. We don't want it, and it should take 10 years because it's not what we asked for. <laughs> and it creates you know, billions of dollars worth of infrastructure requirements that we don't want to pay for. This is a really interesting point. So the cost of land is very, very high, and the cost of developing the infrastructure for that land is very, very high. And now we've got this massive inequality of wealth in New Zealand where the 60% of the population who own property, and in particular the top 10, 20% of whom have multiple properties, are now sitting on uh, houses and land, mostly land, that's worth $1.5 trillion. And just since COVID alone, those people have made over $270 billion in tax-free capital gains on their equity in their homes. And mostly it's on the land, which is worth around about $780 billion. In desperation, I suppose, I proposed uh, a 0.5% land tax, uh, broad base, low rate, right across New Zealand, 
uh, for those people who own land, particularly um, those people who own undeveloped land on the fringes of town, those people you talk about who, as you say, they're not in the business of making homes. They're in the business of making tax-free capital gains on land appreciation. The housing bit is an afterthought at the end if they get around to it. And in fact, there's an awful lot of land banking that goes on in New Zealand. And the 0.5% land tax to me seemed like a great way to A, provide some funds for the infrastructure development that is needed, and particularly in those inner city brownfields areas where you're going to have to beef up pipes, you're going to have to provide public transport, you know, build rail, um, buy buses, um, reconfigure roads into cycleways and, and pedestrian ways, and really, you know, reinvigorate those centres of town. You need to transfer wealth from the edge of town, that undeveloped land, into the infrastructure in the middle. So my idea was 0.5% uh, land tax, potentially a higher version of that for undeveloped but um, zoned land, and also giving councils the ability and encouraging them to have ratings uplift value capture, which means that those people who suddenly get an, a windfall because uh, someone has changed a line on a map um, get to pay a big chunk of tax to pay for the infrastructure. So could, could you tell me, you know, do you think that might work to um, try and um, achieve what we want? I think you're on the money and it's not a, not a new idea. The reason I was motivated to come and talk to you is that, yeah, I am a property developer. You know, I'm, I'm approaching 50, nearly 50 years old. I own scores of rental properties, which, by the way, every one of them I built myself, adding to supply. And I think we've got to be honest. Our politics is failing through political expediency. We have driven a lot of cost into housing to pay for infrastructure. We've encouraged that through our lax approach to financing and monetary policy. But now the chickens have come home to roost. And I think that's the future. Some form of wealth tax is necessary to normalise what is clearly an unsustainable and unequal approach to the distribution of the masses of amounts of wealth that a modern economy generates. And I think a broad-based land tax is effectively a kind of wealth tax, I think that's the future. If we don't get something like that within a generation, you know, when 60 or 70% of families are spending, you know, close to half their income on housing, you've got a problem and that that will eventually, you can already see it, child poverty is intractable. Well, of course it is. We can't afford the places we live in and it shouldn't be like that. It's, it's a financial construct that we don't have the political tools to deal with. So I think... I wanted to be here as a citizen and a property developer and a guy that owns lots of property to say that is the future. I'm ready for it. Why would I be upset? Do you think something like a, a land tax and um, a focus on building medium density would make that change? Because one of the problems we've got is that a lot of our houses at the moment are built by quite small operations, really focused on relatively simple standalone, you know, a couple of hundred square metre 17 garage um, houses. And it seems to me that if you refocus on uh, building medium density in the big cities at scale, you can achieve a lot more and also achieve that industry structure change which is needed. We do have a cottage industry construction sector when it comes to residential housing. I think the vast majority of houses are built by companies with 10 or less staff, I think, in the construction sector. We don't have a Mervac or Lease high-density apartment developing corporation. I think the largest player only builds 3 or 4% of the apartment market. But on a positive note, I think 
the current government is getting things right in terms of national policy statements. That's setting a clear direction nationwide that, you know, we're moving into the future. The only way you can possibly get on top of wider issues facing not just New Zealand but the planet, you're not going to even begin to address those things unless you start to take it seriously that New Zealand is heading to 10 million people and then 20 over the next 20, 40, 60, 80 years. And all those cities of that size the most effective, functioning, most attractive cities in the world are, are dense because people like to live where the action is. It's that lack of institution. So the small builders, yes, they don't have the plant, the equipment, the capital to build it, but the larger players that are deploying hundreds of millions of dollars in capital, my view is that they're institutional. They don't have the ambition to change because it's too easy to make vast amounts of money subdividing land. And that, that is a failure from our larger players in the property market through lack of ambition, that their boards are not saying, well, you're profitable doing 1,000 houses a year at this scale. You know, how many of them were less than a million dollars or less than 1.5? Not many. Do you think we could be doing something better? Well, you know, everyone's got to make a profit, but I think profitability is the lowest possible bar for being business. Why can't you make a profit and, you know, and contribute to NZ Inc.? I know for a fact that my, my business you know, pays more tax than a lot of these multinationals, <laughs> you know, that have revenues a hundred times larger than we do. And that's nuts. But again, it's one of those things we, we don't want to speak the truth. The narrowness of the public discourse around what's going on is astonishing. And you get, I want to come out here as a white-looking, wealthy guy that's property developer and say all these ideas should 100% be on the table. Yeah. I'm also curious, you mentioned that there were some small things. I've talked about the really big thing, which is, you know, tax land and change the incentives for the land bankers and provide a big chunk of change to do the infrastructure investment for all that medium density and public transport work that needs to be done. But what about the small changes that you think could be done that um, they may be politically painful, but maybe not quite so dramatic in financial terms? Yeah, there's there's quite a few. And I'll start this with a concrete example. I'm building a seven-storey build-to-rent building in Newton and Auckland. I'm going to be there a year building that seven-storey building, and it's costing me 10% of the entire project budget to turn the power and water onto that building for 32 apartments. What? How does that work? Well, you pay 540000 to Vector and another half a million dollars to Watercare. I don't have a problem with Vector or Watercare. I'm not saying it's money out of my pocket. I'm just saying this is the fact. It costs 10% of the entire construction budget for building a seven-storey building, which is 10.8 million bucks, to turn the water and power on. And that, that's the result of two generations of political expediency, where you're taxing new housing to pay for water infrastructure upgrades that the 500,000 existing homes in Auckland should be all paying for. And for some ridiculous ideology 30 years ago, we decided a good idea with a country of 5 million people the size of Britain, where 70% of the electricity is hydroelectric, why don't we have 15 private companies so they can all have monopolies? Like, what a good idea that is. And now it's costing yeah. me half a million dollars, and that's not unusual. So, and what that does, of course, you, you, you have to pass that cost on into the individual cost of the apartment, is that the marginal cost of new housing increases relative to the bulk of the um, housing stock. And so what that does is it effectively ratchets up the prices of all the properties. And so what you've just shown there is how over the last 30 years, a generation of politicians and asset owners deliberately chose 
not to invest in infrastructure for new houses and instead loaded up the cost onto the buyer of those new houses in the process, systematically raising the cost of their existing housing and making a tax-free capital gain out of it. And also what they've done is decide collectively as a society that they will push the cost of infrastructure and of future development onto future generations and collect the dividend from that in the form of lower taxes. Yes, baby boomers have got very wealthy. They're very happy. The narrative was nasty old property developers can play for their own infrastructure, which is complete nonsense because at the end of the day, I'm not paying for it. And so I'm not railing as a property developer. I'm railing against these things as a citizen. Most property developers go, well, if it's costing me 10% of the cost of my building to, to turn on the infrastructure, I might as well go and build an expensive house where that might be 1% or 2%. And, and that's the thing I can't quite get my head around at the moment is when does that generation who are holding the median vote, who are feeling personally rich, have the imagination and take the next step to understand that A, um, they're going to have to do an awful lot of fancy footwork financially to make sure their own kids have properties, so withdrawing equity from homes and guaranteeing loans, hoping that son and daughters-in-law are lovely. They're going to have to do all of those things for their own kids. But then, of course, more than half of New Zealand's children are growing up in private rental properties. So what you're doing is sentencing a big chunk of the population to a second-class lifestyle in your own country, which must rebound onto you in all sorts of forms. For example, if you run a business, how are you going to get people who have the skills and the connections and the um, ability to work for you and be productive? Well, it's no surprise that kids who grew up in cold, mouldy homes bouncing from one private rental to the next, whose parents are financially stressed and they're stressed, don't have great educations and struggle. And so what you have is an active generational selfishness without the imagination to understand that it will affect you personally in the long run. And I'm wondering when the penny drops, when that generation go, ah, 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 we better do something different. And I haven't yet seen that. And I'm wondering what will trigger that. I'm sort of hoping something will, but I haven't seen it yet. Well, I think you, you know, to to connect the dots, why why is child poverty so intractable? You know, you've got to, you've got to, Wages and house prices have become decoupled. That's nothing to do with planning rules or construction materials. Sure, there's some marginal improvements you can make on both things. Actually, some quite big ones on construction materials at the moment. But the real issue there is is a macroeconomic one that's allowed that to happen. Like price-to-earnings ratios and shared are not the same as they were 20 years ago either. That's a result of probably a correct decision to avoid 25% unemployment, which we were all seriously thought was going to happen in 2009. Mm. But then no one had the imagination to, to deal with, you know, sure, that's, that's a good thing that we didn't end up like Spain and Greece with 25% unemployment in the Western world. But now we've become addicted to money. The first round was that led up to that from 2000 to 2008, you know, with subprime mortgage debt and that, that sort of financial tool that led to the first stage of wages and asset prices, particularly houses, being decoupled. Then we did the right thing by avoiding mass unemployment. Like We avoided a great recession. Remember, people thought it was coming, so I think that was the right decision to treat money like it is. It's kind of arbitrary. Loose fiscal policy can be appropriate sometimes. 
well, maybe I'm a bit naive, but I don't think the super wealthy realised just how wealthy they'd get with loose fiscal policy and how addictive. <laughs> now we can't put the genie back in the bottle and no one wants to talk about it. And, and I just don't like going to affordable housing conferences because I, I, the solution space for me doesn't sit in planning rules, the RMA, or construction prices. The, the solution space for me sits in you know, equitable tax um, and raise the minimum wage all you want. No one's no one's got into trouble. Make, make it $35 an hour. It would make bugger all difference to the cost of anything. Yeah. So thank you, Mark, for coming in and giving me some hope and also talking about some of the specific issues in your sector. That was a great discussion. Thank you very much. Uh, any, any time. <laughs> Mark Todd, the guy running Ockham. For those in Auckland, you'll see their lovely buildings popping up all over the place. And for those outside of Auckland, a name to watch. Mark, thank you very much. You've been on When the Facts Change on the spinoff. Thanks, Bernard. After the break, we're talking to Stephen Sartorius from Tim Specific. He's a developer of apartments and townhouses in Wellington, and he has some ideas too on how we can ramp up that infrastructure spending to try and deal with this crisis. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank's Chief Economist, Jared Kerr, on what's happening with inflation in 2024. Globally, inflation rose to really high levels. We saw inflation averaging over 10% uh, last year. Now central banks have reacted, they've tightened monetary policy, they've lifted interest rates to levels where it hurts. We've seen growth slow down and we're seeing inflation coming off, which is great news because we import a lot of inflation from the rest of the world, and that imported inflation is easing. So half the job that we're trying to do locally is is being done for us offshore. The other half, the domestic bit, well, that's the tough bit. That's the sticky inflation that's coming out of a housing market, it's coming out of construction, it's coming out of service industries, and it's going to be hard to contain. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Jared and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Skinny are helping you show how smart you are with the 1Q Quiz, an all-new, super-challenging and super-quick daily quiz built by The Spin-Off. Every Monday, Skinny are giving you the chance to prove you're smart with the Skinny Extra Credit question. Get it right, and you'll get the chance to score yourself some Skinny Extra mobile credit so you can text, call, or even video call your group chat and gloat about how big your brain is. T's and C's apply. Well, I'm here in the sunny Cuba Street office looking out over Wellington on a good day, uh, a perfect day even, with Stephen Satorius, who is in charge of Team Specific, a developer that is uh, producing a bunch of units on Taranaki Street in Wellington. Tell us, Stephen, about the, um, the dramas you went through, if you like, to try and get that development up and running, the issues with infrastructure, all of the, all of the ins and outs. 
Yeah, look, look we, we first got into the project in 2018, um, putting the design together and working, working with council with some um, pre-application meetings for that. One, one of the early things that came back when we looked at the infrastructure for the site was the lack of I guess capacity um, on Taranaki Street and, and in the CBD, whereas uh, I guess in a, in a storm event, the pipes are overflowing and, and effectively running into the harbour. In our earlier meetings we had with council and Wellington Water, effectively they said, it's, it's your problem, um, you're wanting to build units here. We would argue that hey, you're, you've got a, you've got a plan for thirty thousand more homes in in the city, um, and we need to work in together um, to get that done. And, and why why should the infrastructure be on our shoulders rather than them doing doing the work previously? You know, over the last 20, 30, 40 years, and, and, and keeping up with with the growth to go with it. Um, from from that, we had to look at options. We were you know doing detention um, on site, and effectively everyone's wastewater kind of um, pulled and pumped out at, at certain hours of, of the night. Um, which also had a, a telemetry system which talked to the other pump stations if they were full, it didn't pump out. Um, got quite a complicated and expensive system. Um, uh, we, we were fortunate enough when we scaled the project, you know, to, to low rise townhouses. We didn't increase the flow much more than what the existing Ford factory had on site previously. Um, unfortunate for our neighbours uh, at the Liberty Hotel, they ended up having to put effectively septic tanks on the sidewalk, which they've now boxed in, which you know, looked, looked very out of place and, and got forced to with council, otherwise they couldn't get the hotel approved. So it was just, just crazy examples of, of what you needed to do. And um, what could you have done with that site if there had been much more robust infrastructure there? Look, I mean, effectively that site could take... Uh, maybe around about 800 apartments um, and, and spread through, but it, it does depend on what design and what layout you would be going for, whether you're going for more rental stock or larger owner-occupier apartments. Well, it does depend on, on that mix as to how you're going to get you know, get your yield out. I mean, with with the townhouses, um, our terrace houses that we have on site there, we've got 151 of them. Effectively next door, the Sanctum apartment block has got the same amount of land as us, um, and that they've only got 92 apartments on their site. So it, again, depends on how you design it. If, if we put one block up and put tennis courts and swimming pools in it, which would be you know, nice and beautiful, but you're still not yielding as much as as, as what we you know, what we potentially could have versus I guess really packing out you know, packing out the site. So we're in this debate at the moment all around the country. How do we get lots of medium density houses, you know, two, three, four storey townhouses, small apartments into CBDs around transport nodes, inner city suburbs? Um, from your point of view, uh, you're going through the mechanics every day of um, forecasting demand, understanding what types of dwellings sell the best, how many you can fit onto a section, the development economics of it. Um, what's necessary to really get the scale and the speed up? Yeah, look, I mean, it, it's, it's a number of factors with that. I mean, there has been some positive um, things come, come out nationally with the, the MPS doing away with, with car parking, you know, if you're close to transport nodes. Uh, we've, we've had a recent project in, in Kapiti. Um, we've got 64 townhouses near, near the town centre. that They sold out pretty much on, on the launch date. Um, and without the MPS in place, we wouldn't have been able to do that development because the car parking requirements would have meant the site was you know, 
not not feasible. We would have probably ended up with 20 or 30 units instead of the 64 that we could get on there because we've got you know, one car park per unit versus two per unit plus visitor car parking and the rest of it to kind of go with it. Um, the bigger thing, obviously, if everyone's always going to say it, is you know speeding up the consent process and, and making that consent process easier for for developers to, to come into it um, and but I, I think a lot of it you know got it's got to do with the you know the market on a whole um, New Zealand's been shut down as, as such at the moment we haven't got you know the labor force and skilled labor coming into the into the country you've got supply chain issues and I guess what we're seeing you know it, it, a build rates dramatically you know jumping up and you know demand because everyone's busy that the, the prices are going higher and for that, you know, we, we can't go out and you know deliver, you know, cheaper product, and it's just you know the, the price is going to be what it's going to be, and if anything, it's probably the cheapest now that it's going to be for the foreseeable future because the price escalation will keep going up. And what about um, infrastructure uh, spending? Because for the last 30, 40 years, councils and the government have effectively tried to load up the cost of new infrastructure for new housing onto the people who are buying that new housing. And it comes in the form of a development contribution that a developer pays and then passes on into the cost of a, a unit or a, a house and land package or, or something. Um, who do you think should pay for that infrastructure for the next generation of homeowners? Yeah, look, I mean, it, it's, it's a hard thing when you're playing catch up. It's a massive backlog of, of work that hasn't been done, should have been done. And you know, it, it, it has to be paid for. I mean, they, they, they should be gearing up um, and going in and putting the money into it um, to do so now. And who's going to be paying for it? I mean, look, as a developer, we're happy to pay development contributions. It is all factored into the overall price if the development contributions got doubled. Uh, the, the net effect is that the, the end purchase is going to be paying more, um, you know, more, more for the unit, which, which, is, which is the downside on that. But you know, we, we're definitely not in the case of hiding and, and saying that we, we, we don't want to pay anything. We, we, we're encouraged to do so. If we know it's going to be a lot more streamlined, we're not going to have the same issues with wastewater, stormwater, um, flooding issues that, that we get at the moment because the, 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 pipes are, uh, the pipes are too low or um, not, not, not big enough and taken to the capacity. I mean, an example for a Taranaki Street site, we had to raise that whole site up to 1.5 metres, um, the, the, the ground level, so we wouldn't be uh, in a flood um, under the new flood modelling. And to, to give you context, the adjoining apartment block our ground level is at level one, so in the event of a, of a, of a major flood, we're going to be nice and dry, um, but, but the neighbours are going to have effectively four metres of, of water. Um, the reality of, of that modelling, is it accurate, is that ever going to happen? You know, very unlikely, but it's just to the point where they said, look, we, we, don't, have, you know, we don't have the capacity, we don't have um, back, backflow preventers, in the harbour and high tide to stop the water coming back up the stormwater pipe. So you guys design around it. And, and again, that's probably adds another million dollars of cost onto that project for you know, bring, bringing in 7,000 cubic metres of fill, retaining and the rest of it to, to kind of go with it. Stephen Satorius, thank you very much for um, talking to us here on When the Facts Change. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how Kiwi Bank are making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi, te here. 
podcast manager at The Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spinoff member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spinoff Podcast Network.